may be seated. Take out your Bible once again, opening to the book of Revelation. After approximately six weeks of introduction from Revelation chapter 1, we make our way into chapter 2 this morning, where we continue and come to that section in Revelation where we find those seven letters written to the seven churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, and to whom John is sending the entirety of the book of Revelation as a circular letter, which will be read in each of the congregations, just as we did in our very first sermon in this sermon series, just reading it from start to finish in its entirety. And this morning, we, we want to hear and heed the first of these letters, which is Christ's message to the church at Ephesus. And as we do that, as we're looking at it together, I want us to be reminded that this is not just a static letter um, or a letter written to somebody that we just get to listen into. I want us to, to take a look at this and consider it is who it is who is speaking in this letter. And so as we look at it together, we're going to begin reading in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, where we were last week. And then we will make our way into chapter 2 together this morning. So, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from which from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now let me pause there before we get into chapter 2. All of the images that John is using to describe his vision of the glorified Christ are drawn directly from the Old Testament. We went through this last week. When, when Jesus is described as a son of man, John is referring to Daniel 7, and he is forever altering how we now read the book of Daniel. Every time we read the book of Daniel now, we realize it is about Jesus Christ. He is that son of man. He's telling us that the everlasting kingdom, which Daniel has been speaking of, is the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. So he's portraying for us the rule and the reign of, king, of this one, King Jesus. When he speaks of Jesus with a, a long robe and a, and a golden sash, he's reflecting upon the, the Old Testament priesthood what the book of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. When he portrays Christ with, 
with hair and uh, white hair and, and, and even his face just overcome with radiating white. He's reflecting on, on just the glory, the beauty, the majesty of Christ. When Jesus' feet glow like burnished bronze, just speaking of the stability of his kingdom, unlike again in the book of Daniel, the nations, their rule and their reign was like on, on feet of clay. In contrast to that, King Jesus' rule and reign is on feet of burnished bronze, a kingdom that cannot crumble, that cannot be defeated, that cannot be toppled. And his voice being like that of rushing water means that the word of God, the voice of Christ is an authoritative voice. It means when Jesus speaks, you never have the right to shrug your shoulders. You never have the right to not listen. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, what did this one say? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And if not will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A.W. Tozer in his book, the Pursuit of God has an entire chapter devoted to the theme of the speaking voice of God. It's a magnificent chapter. And he's drawing out that the God of the Bible is a speaking God. Not that God spoke in the past, but that God is eternally speaking, presently, ongoing. He is, by his very nature, continuously articulate. And that it's this quality of God that he is continuously articulate, that he is a speaking God. It is this quality that distinguishes him from all other man-made gods ever invented. Our God is a speaking God. And, and Tozer argues that God has not only created the world, but filled the world with his living, active voice. And he's done so through the scriptures. It's through the Bible, such that every single time we open up the Bible and our eyes are scanning the page, yes, we're reading, but more theologically correct, we are hearing the voice of the living God. Now, if that is a biblical reality, then at the heart of the Bible, that at the heart of the Bible, anywhere you turn from Genesis 1-1, all the way to the end in Revelation chapter 22, God is speaking. If that is a reality, then that must be at the heart of Christianity. 
It must be. It must be at the heart of everything we do. That means it is not enough just to open our Bibles and to read a text and then close the cover. It's never enough just to sit and attend the preaching of God's Word and then leave. It's never enough to take in new information from the text of Scripture and say, I'm, I'm grateful for what I'm learning. I feel like I'm intellectually growing. That's interesting. I learned something today I never knew before. That even, as wonderful as that is, is not enough. We must know that if our God is a speaking God, we, are, we must be a listening people. When we open the Bible, we're not in control. We don't get to say, God spoke this in his word, but I don't like that part. I don't like that part. You don't get to, to open the Bible and say, well, I'm, I'm reading the book of Numbers. I don't find that particularly applicable to me. Rather, when we open the Bible, we must say, God, this is your active, living voice. Even those middle passages of the book of Leviticus. And you are the king. All of this is about Christ in some way. Oh God, speak to me. And that's what makes Revelation 2 and 3 so important for you and I this morning and in the weeks to come. Because it's a reminder to us of what Tozer told us so long ago. These letters are not just the static letters passed to a first century church. These are the voice of the living Christ, the glorified Christ, the one we spent all of last week looking at his beauty and majesty on display in, the, in uh, John's vision. These are his words. And as we read for the next several weeks, we get to hear his voice. And Jesus, who last week we learned, stands in the midst of his churches. He's here with us this morning. He's here with eyes of flaming fire, a mouth of sword, feet of burnished bronze, a golden sash in his high priestly. He's here with us this morning. He expects us to be listening to him today every much as he expected the church at Ephesus to be listening in the first century. And so it's upon us to make sure that though we're reading these seven letters that you're, you're like me. You've read them before. You've probably heard countless sermon series on them before. That we come this morning not with, well, I think I know what it's going to be today. But that we've made room in our hearts to hear the voice of Christ. Because as we've seen, these seven letters are written to us in our day. I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different this morning. Bow your head here before we go any further in the message. And ask the Lord to help you make room in your heart for his voice today as he speaks to us through the church at Ephesus. You do that now. And as we've set our hearts to worship the Lord, Let's stand together and make this our prayer together. Colin, would you start us? Let's stand and sing. Speak, O oh Lord, as we 
is our, our heart this morning. Well, as we get into these seven letters this morning, there are here at the outset of them, we, we want to keep several things in mind in general um, as we go through them. Uh, the first thing is this, that though these letters are written to certainly specific recipients of the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, 
to very real congregations, real people just like us in their own situation. The letter was, was written for them, but it's also to keep in mind we're looking at apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic epistle, which means we interpret it. Uh, there are all kinds of just weird things unique to this type of genre. And as we work through it, we've seen that the number seven represents completeness. It represents perfection. We saw this in the sevenfold perfections of the Holy Spirit in chapter one, speaking of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So when we come to these seven letters, it means that these letters are written not just for them, but also for you and I, for the whole of Christ's church throughout the ages. Because the issues that they face in the first century are the same issues we faced in the 21st century. In our battle against the seed of the woman, between the, between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent, uh, it's the same battle. Uh, there, there may be uh, specific differences, but the, the nature of the battle is the same. So we are to take these seven letters as a whole because they speak to the needs of the church of Jesus Christ, not just in the first century, but throughout all generations and all places and all circumstances, even to you and I this morning. Everything we see for the next several weeks are universally binding and applicable to the church of Jesus Christ. Also, we want to focus upon a very real danger when it comes to looking at these seven churches, that the message of Christianity, therefore the message of Christ to his churches, is not a message of morality. Now, what do I mean by that? One of the reasons I was so deliberate in going through chapter 1 was, one, I was wanting to establish, just let John establish the foundation. I wanted to ease some of the tension, some of the mystique of the book of Revelation by just kind of spending some time wallowing in there and seeing that this is not any different from what we were looking at in the book of Genesis, what we've seen in the book of Hebrews, even what we saw in the book of Ruth, when we were going through uh, Psalm 53 and 54, the book of Revelation is not it's something completely different. It's focused upon upholding Jesus Christ. It's, it's upholding the message that has always been. Revelation is merely the great exclamation point at the end of a long sentence that goes back to the gen book of Genesis that is Jesus Christ. And so I want us to get accustomed here in, in thinking about the book of Revelation, even when we get into those weird judgments and all things, those things are going to be about Jesus. And everything that John is doing from chapter 1 on through is primarily to help us to see the beauty, the majesty, the sufficiency of King Jesus in all of our circumstances, whether you're in the first century Ephesus or first century Laodicea or 21st century Olive Branch, Mississippi. Having seen the beauty, the majesty, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for everything you are going through in your life, that your heart would be drawn to him to turn off all other things and to turn to him. So when we come to these seven letters, we cannot shift away from that so that as we're going through these, we're hearing a message that these are Christ's instructions for if you want to be a good church of Jesus Christ, do these things. That's morality. And that's usually how these letters get handled. And, and I'm not suggesting that there's not any of that in these. That's certainly a wonderful byproduct, but that is not John's goal. That's not Jesus' goal. That's not the goal of redemptive history going all the way back to before the foundation of the world. If we're only coming to these letters with an interest, how can we be a better church? 
Don't do the things Christ says he doesn't like. Do the things he's... How does that make us any different from the lost world who likes to use God just to get out of hell only? They, they don't really want him. We just want, what can we glean from you for our benefit? But we look together at this passage because it's in the context of Christ who in the previous passage revealed, I'm in your churches I'm standing in the midst of them with eyes of, as flaming fire. And I'm revealing myself to you. All of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. All of that coming to bear upon you and your life. I'm coming to reveal myself to you in your circumstance so that you will be drawn to me. Not so that you will do what the Pharisees do and kind of pull up your bootstraps and I'm going to do this, do that but you will be drawn to the one who has done it all. And you will find in him perfect beauty, perfect majesty, perfect obedience, perfect sufficiency, and be drawn to him. Another thing here at the outset, the pattern of these letters. If you're familiar with this, I'm sure they all follow a very unique pattern. The Lord speaks to the messenger of the church. He identifies himself as the speaker, usually using language from John's vision in chapter 1, he draws that in. He identifies himself. He, he describes the church uh, because he knows them, right? He's there in their midst. He gives them a command. Sometimes there's a rebuke, and these commands and rebukes are usually reinforced by a threat or some gracious promise. And we're going to see this in all seven of these letters as we go. So as we turn our attention to the church in Ephesus, and Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus, which is really Christ's letter to us. A few things about the church at Ephesus. It was a large city. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. A wealthy uh, cultural hub, uh, a commercial hub, a religious hub, a lot of travel routes. You just came through Ephesus. Ephesus was also the place that housed the temple of Diana, or sometimes called the temple of Artemis, depending upon if it's the Greek name or the Roman name. Same temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was the, the goddess that, that was worshipped there in Ephesus. And, and it was the temple of, of Diana that, that, that overwhelmed Ephesus. It was the, the religion of the day, and it dominated not just the religion, but also the econ economy of the area. Um, everything was devoted to this temple. But the church in Ephesus, to whom John writes, was a very interesting church. It had a prestigious history. Uh, Paul, the great apostle Paul, had, had been there on a number of occasions. He even pastored there for approximately three years on one of his visits. And then, uh, to add to the prestige, Timothy was the one who then replaced Paul in, in pastoring there in Ephesus. And later, the apostle John, the author of this letter, also pastored there for a time as well. So a very prestigious history. And when Paul went there, we can read in Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20, um, he, he was just focused upon Christ. He went in there and we're told in Acts that there were a group of about 12 men there who had heard something about Jesus from John the Baptist. They had heard that message of repentance and, and the preaching of John the Baptist, but they were confused. Uh, when, when, when Paul arrives there, they don't realize that the one that, about whom they had heard had already come, lived, died, resurrected, and, and, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. It, it was very cloudy. They didn't understand the person and work of Jesus. And they didn't understand the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul comes in and just preaches Christ to them. Just upholds Christ, fixes their gaze upon him. 
and the gospel that Christ is all and all. And that from the outset, from the inception of the church, began them on an upward trajectory of a, of a uh, protecting the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the church of Jesus Christ, the, the doctrine of, of who Christ is, holding and clinging to Christ's right to rule and reign and, uh, and, and rule over all things. So much so that when false teachers would come in and say, listen, we're one of the apostles, we have a message we want to preach, they would say, Paul, uh, we, uh, John tells us this, they would say, well, what is your message? And they would lay it out, oh, that's not Christ, that's legalism, that's uh, Phariseeism, that is some kind of licentiousness, or, or whatever the case may be. If the Nicolaitans came in, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but we know that they hated them, we know Jesus hates them, yes, Jesus hates some things. That, that they come in, we don't know a lot about them, but probably we're preaching, you're forgiven, therefore it doesn't matter how you live. And they said, that's not Christ. You cannot preach here. You cannot teach here. They protected the authority of the church. They protected the lifestyle of the church, of living a life of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what uh, Jesus applauds about them. The Ephesians church has done well in these regards. Year after year after year, they've endured against false doctrine, against worldly enticement, the lifestyle of the Nicolaitans who come in and say, listen, free, it's grace of God. You live however you want to live. We see a lot of that today still. Man, I, I'm forgiven. There's grace. Therefore, fill in the blank. <laughs> the church at Ephesus is a watchful, diligent, vigilant church, careful to guard themselves against half-truths and false teachers. But there is a flaw. Verse 4. Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now this is so important for us to hear. Because it reminds us, you can be doctrinally right, and you can be gospel faithful in your living, and yet fall into an error of what I love about that is I love being known as I'm just theologically right. I, I just, I, I know doctrine, and I resist error. I have no patience for error. I, 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 I have no patience for those who aren't living a, a life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And we love being right and we love thinking right in front of a watching world. We love being known as a people on social media. This is a person who just, man, everything they say is just perfect, just right. But Jesus, in the midst of this church, with all their right doctrine and right practice, says, now you and man look at the externals. You look at social media posts. You look at how you portray yourself. You look at how you talk and, and, and the things you say and, and the things you say you believe. And, and the... But I, with flaming eyes of fire, look at the heart. And I know you're saying the right things, portraying the right things. But in here, your devotion to me 
is completely hollow. And I think Covenant Life Church, this is a very real danger for us. Corporately and individually. As those who make up the corporate body. This is where we've got to make room in our hearts for Jesus Christ with the authority of heaven and earth to speak to us and might he be saying to you I see what you're doing and I see what you're saying and I see you you got it right up here And, and I see you don't really have patience for those who aren't doctrinally pure and right You've not fooled me. You left me a long time ago. You left your first love. The love you had at first. When Jesus says, I have this against you, you've abandoned the love you had at first, don't think of first love in terms of first, second, or third. I remember growing up, there was a, an acronym, J-O-Y, joy, that I think I probably learned in Sunday school. Jesus, others, and you. Jesus first, others second, you third. That's, that's not what he's talking about here when he says you've left the love you had at first. Rather, you've left that early love you had for me. And he, he, the problem here is he doesn't specify. What, what do you mean by that? But I think God has spoken toward this in so many different ways. One of them was in Jeremiah chapter 2. Where through the prophet Jeremiah, God says about his people, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Then he goes on to say, but my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns from themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They started well. There was this warmth. There was this devotion. And though Israel continued in their religious practice, God himself says, I know your heart. You forsook me a long time ago. And you've created these man-made religious systems and religious ways, broken cisterns that are, they, they cannot accomplish what they're intended. Why is this such a significant thing? Why, why, are, why, why would Jesus not come into this church at Ephesus, come into our church and say, listen, I see, man, I see good theology here. I see a lot of right intentions, right practice, a desire to please. I see that. And, and no, nobody's perfect. I get that. Nobody's perfect. You're doing the best you can. Let me just kind of recommend to you. It looks to me like your, your devotion to me is a little cold. So let, let's, why, why does he come in and not do that? Rather, he comes in. I've got this against you. You've left you're the love you had, the early love you had for me. Why? Answer. Because love for Jesus is the purest and most biblical definition of what it is to be a Christian. Most of us have grown up in a generation where we would have defined Christianity as, well, you repent, you profess faith in Jesus. I'm not undermining. You must repent and you must profess faith in Jesus Christ. Two sides of the same coin. 
But that is not what Christianity is. That's the means. Christianity is being taken out of a world of darkness, a Genesis 3 world, out of the, 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 the seed of the serpent who resists Christ, who hates Christ, who denies Christ, who does not allow him the right to rule over us, and it is being adopted by grace, plucked out of that family, plucked into the seed of the woman, into the family of Christ, such now that whereas with as much intensity as we once hated Christ, now we've been changed from the inside out through the new covenant, through the new birth, given a new heart. Now we love him. Last year, some of you were reading with me a book entitled The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ, and, and I strategically took us through that book written by Thomas Vincent in the 17th century because he lays out so clearly what has been lost in, for most of our generation that the purest and most biblical understanding of Christianity is this. Right now where you sit, what is your affection for Jesus? Is there where Vincent wrote this, the life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Jesus. Without love to Jesus, listen to this, without love for Jesus, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it is without natural life. You can be sitting in a church pew or church chair, reading your Bible, but if there is not that love for Christ, you're as much without spiritual life as a dead animal is without natural life. Faith without love to Christ is a dead faith. And a Christian without love to Christ is a dead Christian, dead in sins and trespasses. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christian. We may call ourselves Christians, but make no mistake. If there's not love for Christ, you do not have the nature of a Christian. We may have the form of godliness, which means I'm religious, I'm theological, but you're holy without the power. That's why Jesus comes in, and this is no small matter to say, I've got this against you. You've left the love you had for me early on. So let's ask this question then. What does it look like? When love to God turns cold, what, what exactly would that look like? And I think we can see this all in different areas. Once your soul melted in repentance toward God, it, it, it repented and you were grateful of the love of God and the work of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And once you, you wrestled with an intense fervency for prayer and the means of grace and Bible reading and for holiness and for the salvation of yourself and for those around you, and once you felt the, the, the clamoring of redeeming love, drawing your heart just more and more to him, a God who loves you this much, in spite of what you do over and over, oh, you're just drawn to him. A desire to know him, a desire to serve him, a desire to, Psalm 108, be determined to worship him, no matter what the situation we go through. Once that should have been the case, but when love to God turns cold, it's usually no longer like that. How 
has the sweet, tender thrill, that yearning desire, that springing energy for Jesus? Has it passed away? When you think about, man, when I was really on fire with the Lord, do you have to go back years? Do you have to go back to a certain place, a certain situation, a certain context? It just hasn't been that way since then. And a lot of times, listen, I'm right there with you. I, I, I create, well, here's why, and I'll shift blame to this, 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 and this. If this was going better, or this situation, or this circumstance, or... No. Jesus hasn't changed at all. When your love for God and for Christ grows cold, here's what continues to happen. It's not that you quit going to church. The church in Ephesus, they're meeting together to read this. They've gathered for church. It's not that your heart, you, you stop going to church, but it does become this. It's drudgery. It's a grind. It's not that I'm opposed to going to church. It's just, I just, I don't know. I got to get myself worked up for it. The Bible's still read, but it's just a dead book to you. Prayer is still attended, private prayers, corporate prayer. We gather for the, you can come to the prayer meeting, but I feel like an outsider. Everyone around me is praying. Everyone around me seems so, but I just, I feel like disconnected. You can gather for worship, and, and when we're told to stand and sing, you stand and sing. And when we're told to sit, you sit. And when you're told to open the Bible, you can open your Bible. When you, the form is there, the form of godliness, but there's no yearning, no joy, no intimacy, no nearness. All those things that I can remember a day when it wasn't a grind. It wasn't hard. The means of grace were a joy. It just isn't that way. What we have to understand, and, and it was true for Ephesus, is true of every church in every century, in every generation, is that it's possible to grow cold toward Jesus Christ and still be extremely concerned about doctrine, and practice, and gospel living. Exhibit A, the Pharisees. You wouldn't meet a more religious, more quote-unquote godly, not biblically godly, but godly religious group on fire for right thinking and right practice. They had no patience for those who didn't think like they thought. They had no patience for those who didn't. I mean, they even condemned Jesus. And Jesus, in the midst of the church at Ephesus, says, I acknowledge your desire for right theology and right practice, but I'm gravely concerned. This is what I'm looking at. And it's cold as ice. So, 
What do you do if that's you? And I would bet, again, you throw out these blanks. I'm in a weird position. I'm talking to a handful of people, and I know this applies to some. I don't know who, but it applies to some. And it, it may not today be applying to everybody. So I'm throwing out this blanket. And if it doesn't apply, please don't feel like I'm, man, he's angry up there today. He's condemning today. It applies to somebody. <laughs> and I'm under the blanket too. How do we respond if we see that that's us? Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. This is what you do. Remember, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. It just begins with remembering. This is something that we've got to understand in our day today. If we recognize that this is us, it does not start with human willpower. It does not start with, all right, all right, I hear what you're saying. I've recognized this. I've made excuses for it. I've tried to blame anyone and everything else, but I hear it. I hear the voice of Christ. I've made room this morning to hear Christ's authoritative voice, and all right, I'm just going to pull myself up out of this. It's going to be, a, I leave here, it's going to be a new day, new week, I'm going to Psalm 108, I'm going to determine to worship the Lord, I'm going to look unto, no, 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 a thousand times no. We don't start with human willpower. If the heart is cold toward God, the only way to warm it back up is to go to God, call to mind the greatness of God. Call to mind the greatness, the beauty, the majesty of Christ to fix your gaze upon Jesus. Samuel Rutherford, another Puritan writer, said it this way. And I'm paraphrasing here. I couldn't find the exact quote, but this was in one of his letters. Don't complain about coldness while you're sitting in the shadows. All right? That's kind of how we do. We sit in the shadows and we complain. It's cold. It's cold. Don't complain about coldness and sit in the shadows. Get out into the sunshine of Christ, is what he says. You know, as a young Christian, when I was growing up, I would find it's, it's common to find your heart growing cold toward God. And, and for some reason, the default for me was to, to turn to books that just uh, and resources that would make, it would kind of bash you for being cold toward God. I would read books on uh, God's judgment, on, on the sinfulness of sin, on God's wrath, on the decline of the soul, very modern books, old books. But, but I found those didn't really help me very much. They have their place in Christianity. In fact, I have found that those tend to be more helpful when you're doing well and we need to be humbled. Read books on the sinfulness of sin. Read books on God's judgment, God's wrath. Read books on the decline of the soul. That's when we need to be humbled. But what I have found is, is, is that when I'm cold toward God, the best thing for me is to find ways to, to warm my heart in, to use Rutherford's language, the sunshine of Christ. Books and resources and sermons and things that, and the word of God itself that push me out of the shadows and into the radiance of Christ. And that's exactly what John has been doing from the beginning when he begins, blessed are those who hear and to heed this word, right, in uh, Revelation 1.3. Where does he go immediately to give us that blessing? Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. In the midst of your tragedy, in the midst of your, here's, here's where blessing and peace and, and rest come from. 
Let me just put you under the blanket of your triune God, the Father who's the architect of your salvation, the Spirit who is the applier of your salvation, and the Son who is the accomplisher of your... Just bask under, under this. And the longer you do so, even in the midst of your circumstances, there's peace by grace. Under this, looking, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the, the default place is to go, look at the cross. Look at the cross. There you see the fullness of, of the radiance of Christ there, and kind of the fullness of who, but you, you, there's other places, you can, eternity past. Look unto Jesus before the foundation of the world. The covenant between the Father and the, the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world, carrying on, planning to carry on the great work of redemption to create a world where God would make his glory, his mercy, his grace known through the salvation of his own enemy, through the life and death of his own son. The great work of redemption all throughout the Bible is revealed before even God said, let there be light. God talked about his love, an eternal love for his people, an electing love, which again makes us kind of squirm a little bit. It's a little uncomfortable, but the fact that before the foundation of the world, he loved his people with an electing love that they did not deserve by grace. Look unto Jesus throughout the Old Testament in the covenants, in the signs and symbols. Look unto Jesus in his incarnation, in his birth, in his public ministry, in his suffering. Yes, his death. Yes, his resurrection. Yes, his ascension. His, his session at the right hand of the Father on high. Right now, he's continuing. There's infinite places to bask at the greatness of God in Jesus Christ. He says, remember. Remember when Christ was glorious. Which leads to repentance. Not just an emotion, but obviously something has transpired from what once was to where I am now. The Bible's answer is, and it's maybe oversimplistic, you're not fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because if you were, nothing compares to him. You have allowed other things in between you and Christ. And you must turn away from all else that's not Christ. That's repentance. Confession, repentance. Lord, I've brought other things into this place of preeminence, place of priority. I repent. I turn my eyes off of all these other things so that I can fix the gaze of my heart upon Jesus Christ. Let everything that's come between you and Christ fall away. That's what he means by repent. Sometimes we remember repent. Yes, there is verbally, I repent, but it's a heart's affection being returned away from all else and unto Jesus Christ. And then return. As I'm repenting and turning away from those things that have come between he and I, I return to him in all of his fullness. So the question is, you may look back on days and think, man, that was when it was at its pinnacle for me. It's just been like this ever since then. Listen, I'm right there with you. I can play the blame game too. But this I know, 
Christ has not changed. He is the one who is and was and is to come. Somewhere along the way, whether we realize it or not, and maybe that's where this has to begin for some of us this morning. I'm not particularly aware of where I have allowed other things to come in. God, you're going to have to show me. Maybe that's where it has to begin. But the question that has to be asked is, what must change if you are to return to the love you had at first? What has to be ripped out of your life so that tomorrow you can go back to that place? What needs to be added to your life if you're truly repentant about this? You see, we have to be concrete. We we have to be real. What what was it you were doing then? Were you reading the Bible more, praying more, memorizing Scripture? Did you get up earlier? Did you get up later? Again, we can come up with all kinds of things, but, but fundamentally, what was it that was fixing your eyes upon Jesus? This isn't a threefold formula. Remember, repent, return. And I am not standing here today telling you it's as easy as this. It's not, it, it is as easy as this, and it's not as easy as this. What we have to do is simple. Doing it is supernatural. It requires grace. Well, there's motivation to do it. Motivation to remember, repent, and to return. He says again there in verse 5, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's kind of, we're in 21st century. Lampstands just don't really communicate. Uh, Dennis Johnson, a great commentator in the book of Revelation, had a helpful picture. We're accustomed to light fixtures and light bulbs. So think about it this way. If you don't repent and go back to those early days, uh, Jesus will come and unscrew the light bulbs and take out the light. You'll still have the light fixtures. It'll all still be in place. But there won't be any light emanating from it. If we don't address the coldness where it is of our heart toward Jesus, that is not a small matter. If we don't repent and return to our devotion to Jesus, fixing our eyes upon him, Christ will come and take the light bulbs out of the room. Lampstands, symbolic of the church. We saw that in verse 20. Also in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit. The oil that fills the lampstands, the Holy Spirit. So what happens when Jesus does this? Uh, People don't quit coming into the room. That's the sad thing. They still gather for church, but there's no light. There's still prayer and Bible reading and prayer meetings and sermons and worship, but the light in the socket is gone. You have externals, you have form, but it's 
never, ever penetrate here. And the Bible will seem like a dead book. It doesn't haunt me. It doesn't confront me. I don't hear the voice of Jesus speaking in it. You know... I rejoice over the past several years. You know, there have been testimonies of, we're not a large church, but individuals who will come up and just say, listen, you know, I'm grateful for this or that. My love for Jesus is growing. Maybe not a whole bunch of all these things that I'm accustomed to having and I wish I had. But I will tell you, my knowledge and love for Jesus has grown. And those are the things that keep me from resigning every week. <laughs> and for you, I pray, keep you coming back. Because that's all I got. It's just Jesus. That's what the book of Revelation says. It's, it's here, look, Jesus. So there is evidence, despite how Cynicism can creep in. And some of you may have just heard Jesus' warning and say, I think the light bulb came out of the room a long time ago. I don't find that to be the case. But it is possible that other people sitting next to you have that light glowing. And their knowledge and love and affection for Jesus and the work of the triune God and their salvation is real. But that you might be sitting there right next to that person, cold-hearted. Your heart has grown cold. You're indifferent. It's become drudgery. You have the form of religion. I mean... You're here every Sunday. You pray, you worship, you listen. But you don't care. It's a waste of time. You're not being transformed by the likeness of Christ, by the word of God, by the preaching of of the word. And where that might be happening, I don't know. But it wouldn't be unique to us. That has happened all throughout church history. Again, the Pharisees. There were certain forms of Puritanism going back to the 17th century. Man, believe me, those Puritans, they had the form of religion. They had the form of godliness. They wrote books on on it. But in some strands of it, what's lacking is, man, there's just no love for Jesus. It's all about right thinking and doing the right things. And and I cringe when I say that because you're not hearing me say those things are wrong. Christ applauds them for that. But done out of a cold heart, it's worthless. I guess the message for us, beloved, is where lovelessness for Christ has crept in, Grab it now. Get hold of it now. 
or there is the danger of the light going out completely. The danger is, man, we can fool one another. We can gather here every Lord's Day. and I can stand up here and fool you. But we can't fool Jesus. Because where is he in this church at Ephesus? The same place he is in the church at Laodicea and Thyatira and Sardis and Covenant Life Church here in the 21st century. In chapter 1, he's, taught, he's standing in the midst of his churches. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he is walking among his churches. And that's why I wanted to begin in chapter 1, going back to being reminded who it is who's speaking. The one who's walking is the one with the golden sash. He is our high priest. And where we're sinful, hey, we have a high priest right here in our midst today who says, come, confess, repent, and return. I, I've made provision for everything you need. He's the one with feet as burnished bronze who says, listen, I know probably you're cold-hearted because life has just beat you down, and man, it's just, it's just over and over and over again, and... It, you know, you're trying to uphold the form of godliness. You're trying to uphold the form of religion. But man, you're just beat down and, and your life is crumbling. I'm walking in your midst. Take a look at my shoes. Feet of burnished bronze. Come to me. I will give you rest. Jump on. Eyes of flaming fire. Everyone else. Myself included. I mean, we, we make it look good. But I see the heart. I see the temperature of your love for me. Jesus is walking in our midst this morning, not as an inspector. I think that's the wrong imagery. Think of it more like a gardener. A gardener who has come in and he's plowed the soil of our hearts. He's planted the seed of the gospel. He's given us new life. He's produced fruit. And like a gardener who's just coming in and he's looking at the fruit, well, let me take a little bit deeper look down into the soil, down into the roots. Oh, something's not right here. And as he's walking in our midst this morning, if Jesus wanted to throw off the church at Ephesus, man, he had the authority to do so. If he wanted to say, you've left your first love, I'm so sick and tired of you. I'm going to spit you guys out of my mouth. I'm done with you. It's over. He could have done so. But rather, he says, I'm here with you. I see your defects. And I love you. And I've given you myself. I've done everything that's necessary. And if there's coldness of heart, quit blaming others and other things and other situations and better days gone by and life has just been hard or nobody's perfect. All of that undermines the sufficiency, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus. He has not changed. If our hearts are cold, he's willing. He says, come to me. John Newton wrote, we may well mourn that our love to the Lord is so faint and wavering, but oh, what a cause of joy to know 
that his love is infinite and unchanging. See, he's not like us. He's not fickle. And we close this morning with the promise. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Parenthetically, not going to spend a lot of time there, but there Jesus himself is saying, I'm writing this not only for the church at Ephesus. This is for all people in all places and all times. Anyone who's hearing this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says even to the church at Ephesus. This is to us and to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where's the tree of life? Where were we introduced to that? Paradise. Garden of Eden. And what happened there? Adam and Eve had full access to it, but they sinned against God, and they lost it. They were kicked out of paradise, out of the garden. And an angel was put there to guard it day and night. There is no return back to that tree of life. Except that Jesus, the Son of God, has come and restored what was lost in the fall, Genesis 3. He's restored it through his life, his death, his resurrection. The verdict of Eden will be overturned. In paradise. This tree of life. Writing to the church at Ephesus, a tree, I can't remember what kind of tree it was, was the symbol of the temple of Diana. It, it, it was symbolized the sufficiency of the goddess. And here Jesus is using that to the church at Ephesus saying, you think Diana or Artemis can supply what you need. Here's the tree of life. And eating of the tree of life is not about fruit. (laughs) It is not about, I've read, the sweetest fruit you'll ever put in your mouth. No. What is that tree of life all about? The Old Testament, it's Christ. It's Christ. God will, in eternity, supernaturally enable us to wake up in heaven to see the beauty, the majesty, the glory of Jesus. It should kill us in that moment. It should crumble us. But because we are sustained by God, we're not destroyed. We go to bed, we wake up the next day, and we see more of the beauty of Christ, more of the majesty of Christ. And that sight is so much greater than it was the day before, and if that should have killed us, this infinitely more so should have killed us, but we're sustained by God. And we go to bed, and we wake up, and there's more of the glory and greatness and beauty and majesty and perfections and sufficiency of Christ that's on display. And every day is like that, more and more and more. And there is never a day we go hungry, we go unfulfilled, or we look back in the past and say, that was the good old days. You see the contrast. Oh, how good it was yesterday. No, Christ doesn't change in his infinite fullness. And at the tree of life in paradise, we will be feasting on him forever and ever and ever. And the next day is sweeter than the day before. That's a picture of what the tree is. That's the great reward here to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's not fruit we're eating. It's Christ. 
Jesus here comes to us. It stings, it hurts, but he says, I see all the form of religion and right theology, but right here, you've left your first love, the love you had at first. Remember, repent, get all those things that come between us out of the way, and return to me, gaze upon me. It's a foretaste of eternity to come. That's where the blessing in the midst of our trials comes, clinging to Jesus.